listening to the Plugged In Podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. And joining me today is Robert Bryce. Robert has been writing about energy, politics, and the environment for more than 30 years. He's published six books in which he's covered numerous topics, including Enron's bankruptcy, the rise of Texas, corn ethanol, digital drilling rigs, renewables, batteries, nuclear energy, and the future of the electric grid. He's a visiting fellow at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity and the host of the Power Hungry podcast. Robert was last on the show in June of 2020, where we discussed his feature-length documentary, Juice, How Electricity Explains the World, which is available on iTunes, Amazon Prime, and other streaming services. Robert, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Alex. Glad to be with you. <clears throat> Want to talk today about the blackouts in Texas. And since you're a resident of Austin, Texas, and you've written a book and produced a documentary about the uh, importance of reliable and affor- affordable energy, I can't think of a better person to talk to about uh, this issue. So um, I think it'd be valuable for our listeners just describe your experience last month with the uh, the, the blackouts, and we'll start there. Sure. Well, we lost uh, we lost power on the morning. Uh, it was the Monday morning. It was the uh, uh, double checking out. It was the morning of the fifteenth at about one forty five, and we were without power for uh, forty five hours. Um, and this was when the biggest blackouts occur. And in fact, when now looking back, when it was clear that ERCOT's entire grid was on the verge of failure. Um, it was at about 150 that morning when they had a frequency drop of down to 59.3 hertz. Um, but in any case, w- we were lucky. And I published a piece that morning, later that morning, about nine or 10 o'clock on Forbes, with the headline that this blizzard proves, uh, the, uh, exposes the perils of attempting to electrify everything. And in the wake of that, and in the wake of the blackout, I'm even more convinced. I'm, I'm adamantly pro-electricity. But we had natural gas in our home, so we could cook. We had hot water. Um, we had hot coffee, which when it's co- incredibly cold outside, that is such an enjoyable thing. Um, and it was we, it was 12 degrees on Monday morning when we got out of bed. And so we were able, we had a diversity of fuel supplies, and thank God for that. And But we also had firewood. We had a fireplace. So for us at that time, energy security meant having having fuel in our cars so we could, if all else failed, we could get in our cars and stay warm. But it was also having natural gas uh, that we could cook and having firewood. So um, it was really a lesson to me in the fact that we've taken one, that you have to have fuel security, and that means a variety of fuels. And second, that we we try and shift all of our society's energy loads onto the grid at our extreme peril. Yeah, the the diversity of uh, of sources is something I want to get into here. But you, you know, just over the past couple of weeks, something that I've realized, you know, grid issues are extremely complex, and it's one of those things where the more you learn about it, the more you find out that you don't know. Um, so very fortunate to have you on today. You've been following these issues for quite a while, and um, over the past couple of weeks on your podcast, you've devoted a lot of time to talking to experts about uh, what exactly happened in Texas. Um, so I certainly encourage our listeners to go to uh, Robert's podcast. It's uh, the Power Hungry podcast um, and check out those episodes. But um, could, could you just give us a brief summary of what you think went wrong in Texas with these blackouts? Uh, it's certainly the case that, you know, 
it was an extreme weather event, but it seems like there's a bunch of different explanations that have emerged from a bunch of different people and uh, certainly just difficult to make sense of everything. So uh, what's your take on the situation? Well, my take is uh, very briefly what Meredith Angwin uh, uh, commented on my podcast uh, shortly. Well, I guess it was about a week ago or several days after the, the, the blackout. She said the reason is simple, grid mismanagement, that the rules of the Texas grid did not encourage reliability and resilience, and that that's the bottom line. Now, if I were to take it a step further, that the way that this energy only market was set up in Texas, the fundamental flaw that policymakers made was that, oh, electricity is a commodity, like a hamburger, a tortilla, or, you know, bag of potato chips. No, electricity is a service, and it's in a service that is absolutely critical to our functioning of our economy and our entire society. So we can there it is you're right incredibly complex and the grid itself is the world's largest machine it's the, the undoubtedly the, the biggest most complex and most important network in our society but it was the inattention to the importance of that network and its fragility that led to the ultimately to the blackout now we can talk about all the other reasons and the things that might be done to fix that but the fundamental problem i think was that was this Oh, well, we'll just leave it to the market. Yeah, no, there are certain things that are too important to be just left to the market. There seems to be an issue of maybe not uh, prioritizing reliability in terms of, and you touched on it there, that they're just treating each uh, source almost the same. Could you maybe just talk a little bit more about the part, the market structure there? What exactly, how, how exactly is it structured so that um, the uh, the value of reliability is being overlooked? Sure. Well, I guess the shortest way I'd answer that, Alex, is this, is this way, that the market was set up to with these price caps, that if demand got so high that generators would jump into the market because they were being offered a very high price for the electricity they were producing. So at, 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 one, at a, I think it was on the 16th, on a Tuesday, that ERCOT asked the Public Utility Commission to intervene, the Utility Commission intervened and said, yeah, the new cap on uh, the wholesale price will be $9,000 a megawatt hour. Well, they raised that price in thinking that, oh, well, then a motivated generator is gonna come in and provide juice because of attracted by that high price. What they found was that in fact, very little new generation come on, came online. So that there was no provision for uh, essentially uh, uh, being able to call up new supply because the only way they were enticing people into the market was with these big numbers these you know these these jackpots as i think about it in the in this casino well there was no available uh, generation to be had so it was a, a lot of things came together there's no one single cause it was bitterly cold there's no question about that and it was bitterly cold for a very long time. I think in Austin we had freeze a sub-zero temperature, sub-freezing temperatures for six days in a row. That's that's not happened before, at least in my in 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 from the 35 years I've been here. So a lot of reasons, but it was a fundamental the bottom line, what caused it government failure? It was a government failure, not a market failure. In your uh, recent Forbes article, you explained that the grid was actually a lot closer to being uh, to failing in a much more catastrophic way. Could you uh, just explain exactly um, how close this event was to being uh, a much more 
worse issue than it already has sure. been. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Gladly, because this is the part that I've thought about. I haven't written about it yet, but Texas came so close to a going the, the entire Texas grid going black. 26 million Texans at a stroke would have been plunged into darkness when the temperatures were below freezing. It was snowing sideways and the roads were impassable. Now think, just it doesn't take very much imagination to consider what that would have meant. Well, from a national security standpoint, a lot of people don't like Texas. I get it. I'm from Oklahoma. I'm not here to brag about Texas. What would have happened on the border? What would have happened on at, at Fort Hood, at uh, some of the uh, air bases in, in 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 around San Antonio, Fort Bliss? You know, the, Texas is in terms of military installations has some of the biggest in the country. What would have happened to those? What about the refining sector? What about the food sector, transportation? United and and uh, in Houston and American and, uh, Airlines in in Dallas you have all those airplanes. Well, suddenly they won't. You, you might be able to get them in the air, but with the fuel they have on board, or maybe with the fuel that's in the trucks that are around. But if all your pumps are running on electricity and there's no way to pump jet fuel, suddenly you have a lot of very expensive airplanes that are just sitting there. So the knock-on effects of what could have happened, I mean, it's truly scary. It would have been a mass, what they call it, a mass mortality event. But about how close they came, in the briefing last week that ERCOT had at the urgent board of directors meeting, Bill Magnus said they were about four and a half minutes away from what would have been a cascade of generators clicking offline because the frequency on the grid had fallen so low. The frequency on the grid needs to stay at 60 hertz all the time. It fell to 59.3. And so they almost tripped a series of automatic disconnections from the grid that could have led to the system going black. And to add to that, last week, uh, the head of Vistra, during a hearing, uh, I think it was in the, either in the Senate or the House, said that their, their nuclear plant, Comanche Peak, was about three minutes from clicking offline, uh, disengaging, because I, presumably because of the frequency issue. But again, uh, I mean, only seconds, really, to spare, 180 seconds, 200 seconds, you know, this, I mean, the potentially catastrophic failure of the Texas grid would have reverberated throughout the rest of the U.S. economy for months to come. And you've also been devoting space in your columns to highlighting the uh, the way that this exposes the problems with trying to electrify everything. And you touched on that a little bit in our intro here. Um, you point out that these plans would concentrate risks on the electric grid that, that we already see is starting to have problems in places like Texas and California. Um, and would essentially be the opposite of an anti-fragile policy, that it, it sort of compounds our risks. So can you explain the importance of diversifying our, um, our resources in terms of where we're getting energy from? And then, um, you know, what are your thoughts on there, – there's cities mostly in California, but also in the Northeast, I know, um, that have been banning natural gas hookups, um, and it seems to be – policy option that is gaining some traction, especially in um, certain states. Uh, what are your thoughts on those bans and um, how is all that related to this? Sure. Well, let me back up and, and talk about the, the electrify everything issue in, the, in terms of the winter months, because this is where the resilience and, and, and reliability of energy supplies is the most obvious. And I didn't quite understand this until Richard Meyer from the American Gas Association spelled it out. And he did so on his Twitter account. But he pointed out that during the winter months, 
the amount of, of, of energy that is delivered through the gas grid is something on the order of three times the amount of energy that's delivered, the amount of, amount of energy that's delivered on the coldest day of winters, winter with gas is roughly three times as great as the amount of total uh, uh, peak energy delivered by the electric grid during the hottest days of the summer. Now, when you think about that, you think, well, how can that be? And, you know, as my dad used to say, too soon, old, too late, smart. Well, you think about it. If it's zero, say zero degrees Fahrenheit, and you want it to be 70, well, you've got to cover 70 degrees of, of, a, of a temperature differential. Whereas in the summer, say it's 100 degrees and you want it to be 70, well, that's only 30 degrees. Now, it's still significant, but that gap in the winter is twice as big as it is in the winter. The, the gap in the winter is twice what it is in the summer in terms of the, 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 the delta in terms of temperature. Well, so the, the reality is that our grid already is being taxed, the electric grid is being taxed to the maximum, but the gas grid was able to, to deploy, there were very few natural gas outages. There was one here in Austin for a brief time, but it's easier, it goes back to it and proves an old saw in the utility business which is that it's easier to move molecules and electrons. And so the gas grid is part, if we want resilience, if we want societal resilience, which should be a focal point, absolutely, for our energy systems after 9-11, after Hurricane Sandy, after COVID, we need resilience. And, in, and, and electrifying everything would do the exact opposite. It would put all collectively, mixing my our, our, you know your metaphors here, but all of our energy eggs in one basket. And if that basket fails, the catastrophic effects would cascade through the entire economy. So what, what is even more amazing and stunning and frankly maddening, because this, this blackout really has changed my attitude on a lot of this and made me realize, no, this is too, this is, these, these issues are too important to be, in some cases, to be polite about it. It's just that the blackouts are happening, and yet these same groups, and they're, they have tens of millions of dollars behind them, are pushing this electrify everything in spite of what is a clear warning shot about the fragility of our electric grid and the, and the necessity, the national security essentiality of the gas grid. And yet they're saying, oh, we'll just do without it because of climate change. No, wrong. Decarbonization is a goal. Climate consult, uh, change is a concern. It's not the only concern. Yeah, and I know something that you've written on in regards to that topic, I, I think it was a report that came out maybe June or July of last year, um, that these bans have effects on certainly lower and middle class income uh, people that it, it affects them much more than, say, uh, somebody who's in a higher income uh, situation. Could, could you just talk sure. about a little bit about, you know, just beyond the reliability issues, um, the, the sort of equity concerns also with the natural gas ban? Sure. Well, the people who really study this call it the energy burden. So I'm lucky. I don't consider myself rich, but I'm comfortable. Well, the percentage of my uh, uh, income that I spend on energy is smaller than, as a percentage of my total income, than, than someone who's living in poverty and trying to stay warm in the winter. And they just, they're spending more of their disposable income on energy. So they have a higher energy burden. Well, this electrify everything would de facto be a regressive tax on low income people. Why? Because electricity costs on an energy equivalent basis four times as much as natural gas. So 
when it comes to home heating, when it comes to cooking, when it comes to drying your clothes, heating water, things that uh, energy services that are done in the home in many homes in California, it's 80% of homes have a natural gas hookup. They're using energy services with a very low cost energy form in the form of natural gas and they're burning it directly. So this idea, oh, we'll electrify everything. Well, one is not only is it a regressive tax and that you force the consumer to use a form of energy that is four times as expensive, even if you assume it's that a heat pump or an electric appliance is twice as efficient uh, as, as it used to be, okay, well, still you're talking about a doubling of their energy costs. It's a regressive tax, it's just wrong. And, and, and yet these bans, there are four, over 40 communities in California now that have passed bans. The city of Seattle has done this, uh, uh, passed uh, one as well. 12 communities in, in Massachusetts are now uh, itching to pass bans. These are just completely wrongheaded. And it's the idea that climate change is the only concern. No, it is not the only concern. We have to understand that uh, uh, low and middle income people should not be, uh, we should not be increasing their energy burden. And that is completely lost or ignored uh, by these groups that are pushing this agenda. It's definitely striking that this is taking place in states like California, where I believe they have the highest poverty rate out of any state in the U.S., or if not the highest, they're they're, they're, they're one of the highest, I believe. That's Um, right. The, the number of people living in poverty in California is over 7 million. The number of people living in poverty in California is roughly equal to the entire population of Arizona. And, and, their, energy, and their energy bills are going up because of all the regressive policies that they've passed. It's, it's truly astounding and, and more than a little frightening at the way that cavalier attitude that is being uh, uh, promulgated by uh, you know, academics from elite universities, you know, some of these very wealthy and, and, and prominent and powerful environmental groups that by their actions, they're just proving they don't care about this inequality issue. And I, I just, I, I find that, uh, I find that both uh, worrisome and in some ways just contemptible. And it, for the cities in the Northeast, especially um, given that their winters are so cold, I, I, I know um, Ann Arbor, Michigan, I'm from the Detroit area. And I know Ann Arbor, Michigan is one of the cities that's considering one of these too. When you right. think about in terms of reliability and these issues too, especially with how cold it can be there, um, those cities should probably be the last ones considering this. And- well, you make a good point. And, and I'll just make a, a quick point on that, which is this idea, oh, we'll electrify everything. And all those people in those cold climates will use heat pumps. Heat pumps are terrible in the winter in cold climates. And there's there are numerous studies have found this as the temperature drops, the efficiency of heat heat pumps declines as well. And uh, the New York State and Energy Research and Development Authority has already effectively admitted that for that heat pumps aren't economically viable in New York State because of this very issue. So there there are a lot of issues that are coming together here, both in terms of affordability, reliability, resilience. And the idea that we're going to force low and middle income people away from reliable, a reliable gas grid that has proven quite resilient and able to deliver big surges of energy during the winter when it is essential to keep them from freezing to death. These are key issues that just can't be ignored. Absolutely. Shifting back to Texas, I know uh, one thing that you wanted to talk about, you sent me an email this morning, uh, the Brazos electric cooperative they filed for bankruptcy this morning which appears to be one of part of the fallout of all this and yeah. it seems like there might 
be more of these cooperatives that are following suit. You want to just explain what's going on there? Um, sure. Well, this is a, a, a very worrisome uh, trend in what's happening in, in Texas now. Last week during the urgent board member meeting, the board of directors meeting at ERCOT, there was a discussion about ERCOT's liquidity. So to understand what's happening here, so ERCOT acts as uh, the best analogy is an air traffic controller with a cash register. So they manage the flow of energy uh, uh, by, from the generators then to the transmit to the distributors who then distribute it to the to the companies, and they collect money as kind of a middleman and make sure the generators get paid for their electricity and that the people who are using the electricity pay them. So they're a, they're they're a payor and a payee for all these market participants. Well. What happens if one of the market participants then defaults on their obligation to ERCOT? Well, ERCOT made it clear last week that if there is a default, that the, the cost of that default will be shared among all the rest of the market participants. Brazos Electric Cooperative uh, this morning, this is now Monday, they, they filed for bankruptcy. And I, I believe that the total bill, they, the total liabilities they expressed was $2.1 billion. Well, so then if that's the only one, then maybe that's not going to, excuse me, be such a big deal in terms of ERCOT. But I bet there are more bankruptcies coming. And in fact, last week, last Friday, ERCOT said it was $1.3 billion in cash short already. Well, now they're another two or so billion. Well, now they're $3.3 billion at least cash short. Where is the money going to come from? There's no indication of how any of this gets resolved. I mean, you talk about a scary situation where this system that was set up that was supposed to let every, leave everything to the market, everything's going to sort it out. No, it's not going to get sorted out. And I'm, I fear that the only option is going to be at some point that the legislature is going to have to intervene and every taxes, Texas taxpayer is going to be on the hook. And we'll certainly be keeping an eye on things as they unfold there in Texas. Um, is there anything that we haven't covered that you think our listeners should know? Sure, sure. Well, a couple things, I guess, uh, since you asked. One was that there's no question now that nuclear generation performed better than any other form of generation in Texas. And this is key. Yep. I'm adamantly pro-nuclear. If we're serious about CO2 emissions, we have to be serious about nuclear. And yet we're deeply unserious, deeply unserious. And in fact, this year, there are uh, over five gigawatts of nuclear capacity that are slated for closure. Two plants, two nuclear plants in Illinois, uh, Dresden and Byron, and uh, Indian Point Unit 3 in, in New York. The Texas blackouts prove beyond a shadow of doubt, if we're serious about resilience and reliability, those nuclear plants need to be kept open. I mean, even if you take the CO2 out of the picture, those plants should be kept open. Second, uh, and this fits into something I, you know, I've been talking about for over a decade, natural gas and nuclear. If we're serious about reducing emissions, uh, small footprints, uh, low carbon, low carbon and low cost, Natural gas and nuclear are the keys. So I've already talked about the importance of nuclear during the, 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 the blizzard in Texas, but natural gas for all of the maligning that's been done of natural gas, oh, it couldn't deliver, et cetera. No, 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 no. Natural gas performed uh, in, in, in the most of the heavy lifting during the coldest days of the blizzard. It's time for the United States to understand that natural gas is, is strategic fuel that is critical to our energy security and therefore our national security. Um, this, it is domestic, it's low carbon, it's low cost, it's abundant or even super abundant. And the efforts to get rid of natural gas, again, like this idea of electrifying everything, we do so at our peril. 
there's certainly a long conversation that we could have about uh, pipeline infrastructure when it comes to natural gas and certain states, New York comes to mind where obviously the, the infrastructure is being blocked. Uh, that that might be a discussion for another time, but- uh, Yeah, but, the, but it's of a piece with this attitude of, oh, we'll do it all with renewables. And how and incredible it is that New York would be, would be making these claims, shutting down their nuclear plant, the, the last one downstate, they have some nuclear plants that are upstate, closing down one of the most critical pieces of infrastructure in terms of electricity for New York City, but at the same time blocking natural gas pipelines and saying we'll do it all with renewables, when the, the resistance to big wind, the resistance to large-scale wind projects in upstate New York has been so fierce that the state is trying to overrule local communities in terms of zoning. So these are all unfortunately of a piece of this uh, demonization of hydrocarbons that are with this dream that we can replace them with renewables. And it's just, it, it, it has no basis in reality. It's, and it's extraordinarily worrisome. And I, as I said, the events of the last two weeks have really changed my attitude on these things because it it, 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 it is just so underscored the importance of energy security for me, both on a personal level and also as I think about it for the United States, for Texas and for the United States as a whole. I think that's a great place to leave it. Uh, Robert, thank you again for your time today. Uh, always great to have you on. And uh, as I said, I encourage our listeners to check out Robert's podcast, uh, Power Hungry Podcast. And his documentary that he released last year was Excellence, uh, Juice, How Electricity Explains the World. Robert, thanks for and your time I'm, today. Thanks a million, Alex. Thanks.